I remember when I got cold that there was a place available just like crying on the phone because I knew that that was going to be the most difficult form of treatment that I probably ever did, but probably the most life-changing. Welcome to the Binge Dietitian Podcast. I'm Jonathan and I'm here to help you end 24-7 food thoughts, binge eating and actually enjoy life with food. This episode is for educational and informational purposes only not to be substituted for medical or personalized advice. Check the link in the description for my recovery resources and let's get straight to the episode. So hey guys, I'd just like to introduce you to Sarah Liz King and how about you do the introductions and tell us who you are because I'm sure I know a few things about you but I'm sure there's much, much more that everyone listening to this podcast would want to know. Well, hello. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to speak with you today. As you said, my name is Sarah. You can find me online everywhere at Sarah Liz King, L-I-Z-K-I-N-G. And that's kind of my brand, I guess. And me as a person, I am an exercise physiologist and a health and recovery coach. So I am very much a little bit of a science nerd. I love everything to do with human physiology and movement and nutrition. But my main interest areas are supporting people in recovery from eating disorders, disordered eating, exercise compulsion, and a few different women's health conditions, but the most prominent being hypothalamic amenorrhea. So that's what I do for work. Outside of that, um, I live in beautiful Sydney, Australia, and I live by the beach. I live by Bondi Beach, which is uh, very world famous. So I feel very lucky to live here. I am a dog mom, so I have a very cute little cavoodle who might make an appearance barking behind me at some mm -hmm. stage. Um, and I would say in my downtime, my favorite things to do are like exploring new places to eat, catching up with my friends, doing something active and outdoors moving my body and having the occasional day where I do absolutely nothing and just relax on the couch. That sounds like you live a life, the dream life. Bondi Beach, I've, I think I've heard that many times in movies, but I didn't really know where it was. So it's actually in Sydney, Australia. It's in Sydney, Australia. It's, the, on like the, it's in the eastern suburbs of, of Sydney. So it's about um, 25 minutes from the city like the city center so yeah pretty special to live here to be fair that's amazing because when i was younger well mostly from cartoons you would hear australia as this place that has like a bunch of crazy dangerous animals but when i speak to friends oh, yeah we do <laughs> oh you do oh okay lots of yeah. good things and lots of not so good things then yeah yeah i mean there are very there are a lot of dangerous things here but mostly they just look like most of the things here are a lot of things here are also like they look really like they look really dangerous, but they're actually harmless. They just look scary, too. So like the spiders here are really big, which I'm not a fan of, but <laughs> a lot of them are harmless and the small ones are really dangerous. So, oh, yeah. OK, I don't know. I don't know if that's very reassuring. <laughs> no, it's not. It's definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, going back to. um your little background. So you support people with, uh, women with eating disorders, disordered eating, body image and hypothalamic amenorrhea. What came first? Did you want to study to be a sports, is it, was it physiologist? So I'm an exercise physiologist. Yeah. Um, just or the, or did you want to like, what, what started it first? What, where was the trigger? So it's a really interesting story. And part of it is kind of interwoven with my own mm. personal story. So when I left university, sorry, when I left high school, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. However, I knew I was really interested in health. So I actually applied to do medicine mm. and then, yeah, physiotherapy and nutrition and dietetics. And those were the three things oh, that I applied for. Mm. So I did all the tests to do medicine. I got an interview and I was like, oh, I'm not really sure if I want to do medicine. So I didn't end up going into that. Um, I don't know if I'm grateful for that because I have a lot of friends in medicine. And it looks like a really challenging, 
like education and training. So I decided to go into nutrition and dietetics. Now, at the time, I was like 17, 18, and probably just becoming aware of how my body looked. Before Mm -hmm. that, really didn't think about it too often. I was very sporty. I had a very good relationship with food growing up. My mom and my dad, like they mirrored really like healthy, normal relationships with food. Um, And so I never really thought about those things. But then as I moved into the last two years of high school and started becoming aware of my friends dieting and the formals that we were going to and what boys liked and how we were meant to look and what was in glossy magazines, I definitely became more self-aware of what my body looks like. And I entered university and I got into a university that um, none of my friends were going to at the time, which is really difficult. But I asked my parents as my like graduation gift if I could have a gym membership, which was like a weird thing to ask for. But this particular gym had like a pool and tennis courts and like had a couple of friends that went there and it was really nice. Okay, that's a good gym membership. So I was like, it was kind of like this was like a nice thing because I was riding horses at the time too. And I wasn't I wasn't playing sport um, other than riding horses. I wasn't wasn't playing sport because I'd left high school and I just wasn't sure how that was going to work at uni. So I was like, I'll just go to the gym instead. And. I would say throughout those first couple of years at uni, especially the first like six months at uni, I found it really difficult to adjust Found it really difficult to make new friends. I found it really difficult to find my groove with my routine. I wasn't really like enthused by what I was learning because your first year of university is like very basic, Mm -hmm. like chemistry and biology and, you know, all of the really foundational things that you need to learn, but nothing that was kind of like really exciting. And so I started using the gym as kind of an outlet to make myself feel better. And I'd always heard that exercise was beneficial for that. And to be fair, it was like a really healthy relationship with exercise when I first started. I just wanted to feel stronger and to have some fitness and to explore something I'd never done before. Um, And that slowly changed over the years to become really compulsive and rigid and turned into me developing an eating disorder with the predominant like behavioral kind of aspect that I was struggling with being kind of this compulsive exercise component because I always continued to eat regularly, but I was just exercising Mm. a huge amount. So That really impacted my studies. I kind of had an eye-opening moment where I was like, okay, this is no longer reasonable or healthy. It's like taking over all aspects of my life. I need to figure out what is going on. And I think for a lot of people that have struggled with disordered eating or an eating disorder or anything related to compulsive exercise, you have this moment where you're like, no, I'm in control. That's your thought. Like, I'm no, I'm in control of this. Like, I can definitely just like decide what I'm doing, but actually it's the control that controls you. And then when you recognize that that's happening, you're like, okay, it was time to get some help here. So I put my university studies on pause because I was like, studying to be a dietitian while you have an eating disorder is probably not the best idea. No. And To be honest, there's a lot of people that go through the program who do have active eating disorders and disordered eating, which in itself, you know, you kind of go like, oh, does does that kind of breed the interest in that area or vice versa? But anyway, I was like, no, I really need to take some space from my degree, get myself better, and then see what I feel like doing. So that was my first kind of dip my toes in, went and sought some treatment. Probably wasn't the best treatment that I had, but I was kind of like, I need to proactively work on this. And then I worked full time. And completely stopped my studies just to kind of focus on getting healthy again. So I did did a year of that. I actually got what I would say as like 70% of the way recovered. But I kind of was like, cool, good. I'm, I'm quote unquote there. And I decided because I was doing better that I would reapply to university and explore changing degrees. Um, I did a lot during that year, but I, I did a lot of soul searching and I was like, 
okay, well, like I turned a corner with my relationship with exercise and actually nobody helped me do that. I had to figure out how to do that myself, how to deal with this whole compulsive exercise things because, you know, none of my health professionals ever talked to me about it other than like, you know, if I wasn't gaining enough weight, they'd be like, you need to stop exercising for a week. And I'd be like, okay. But there wasn't ever any uh, conversation around like, what's your relationship with exercise? Like, what is, like, why do you use it as an outlet? That kind of thing. So I ended up getting accepted into uh, an exercise science degree in Sydney. And I was living in Adelaide at the time. So I was like, you know what? Change of scenery, start afresh. I packed up my whole life in about two and a half weeks and moved to Sydney to start a new degree and ended up um, progressing that degree on to exercise physiology with the view that I always wanted to work in mental health in some capacity. I kind of always knew that. So that's kind of the long version of it. I ended up graduating as an exercise physiologist four years later and um, was probably still struggling with components of some disordered eating. Mm. Like I said, I was like 70% of the way recovered, but I kind of ebbed and flowed. And again, people listening to this who have ever struggled with eating disorders or disordered eating knows it's not linear. Sometimes you take three step forward, steps forward and five steps back. So I would say during that time, I was, I was still seeking treatment and I was still getting help. And when I graduated, I worked in corporate health that burnt me out after about two and a half years. And then I moved into working in, in mental health. So I kind of just had this aha moment after deciding that corporate health was never going to be my career, that I had to mold my own career if I wanted to be, if I wanted it to be in a certain area. So I started working in a few private hospitals around Sydney in, uh, for exercise, so for exercise guidance and support an exercise prescription um, in the areas of eating disorders, mood disorders, as well as drug and alcohol addiction. So I was running these programs for inpatients as well as outpatients, um, doing lots of education around exercise and movement, actually doing prescription for them, talking about overcoming obstacles that they were coming up against, all this kind of stuff. And I opened my own private practice as well. Mm. That was kind of the start of it all. And now here I am, I guess, having, I guess, just uh, developed an interest in this particular population. And now I would say my, my main mission is empowering people to have a healthy relationship with food, a balanced relationship with movement and confidence in their body beyond what it looks like. So I work with people from a wide variety of backgrounds in terms of eating disorders and disordered eating. But my main mission is to help people develop that kind of like intuitive, flexible, inclusive relationship with those things. Hmm, that's, that's amazing. That's an amazing story, Sarah. And just going back, um, so you said you started your private practice and you were like supporting people with exercise, people with eating disorders with exercise, right? Yes. What's that like? How could you implement exercise for people with eating disorders because sometimes exercise could be something that could be fueling their eating disorder. Yeah. So I think that's a really big myth because if we look at the research, a lot of the research says like supervised modified exercise in people who are medically stable is incredibly safe. And more than that, it gives them an opportunity to explore their relationship with exercise that they they haven't had before and they haven't been able to. And there are also two sides of it. So we know like eating disorders, disordered eating kind of run on a spectrum. With people's relationship with exercise, we have obviously exercise compulsion on one side and then complete exercise avoidance on the other side. And you often see people sit on these extremes. And so having that ability to do movement during their overall recovery journey with someone who is helping them explore it so they can find this messy middle ground where they can do some exercise. It's not inherently to change their body weight, shape, or size. They can have the benefits of it, maybe use it from time to time as a stress management tool, but not the only stress management tool. Then you give the people the ability to move out of their recovery 
and continue to use exercise in a really healthy way. But if we just ignore it, then all we're doing is perpetuating this notion that mm. exercise is almost like a carrot that we dangle in front of people yeah. that they can have and that they can do at the end of their recovery versus being something like brushing our teeth. You know, we do it a little bit every day and we know that just doing that tiny little bit every day helps us take care of our body. We don't spend two hours brushing our teeth mm -hmm. and we don't spend two seconds. So okay. it's helping people recognize that this is a health behavior, but it is dose dependent. And that dose that is correct for you, for mental, emotional, uh, physical health reasons needs to be explored while you're in that recovery process so that you know what's going to be right for you as you move forward. So it's a really good exploration for someone. And I find it incredibly rewarding to get to do that mm. with people. Yeah. So from what you're saying, like exercise is a health behavior. And like you said, it's a spectrum, just like our food, uh, our relationship with food, really. Just going back to a little, a little backwards, just explore a little further, just for my knowledge. So you're struggling with your relationship with food, or mm -hmm. eating harder, back when you were studying nutrition and dietetics. So you moved to sports and yeah. it seems like you have tons of experience, I mean, tons of knowledge about eating disorders, HA, hypothalamic amenorrhea, body image issues. Do you ever regret two questions? So. Where did you learn all these um, eating disorder um, recovery tips and support? And number two, do you ever regret not completing nutrition and dietetics? I do regret not completing nutrition and dietetics. However, in saying that, mm -hmm. I have had many clients who uh, have been through the process of studying nutrition and dietetics and one of the things I always found really problematic was how fat phobic a lot of the materials and coursework and things were mm -hmm. and how much it was just all centered around obesity. And I mean, it was similar when I studied exercise physiology that you felt like your job was going to be helping people like lose weight and stop eating terribly when in actual fact, like that's, that's not the case. And sometimes I almost feel like a lot of the materials taught at university perpetuate disordered eating. So I'm, I regret the fact that I don't have the degree because I think I could do a world of good for mm. the industry in that sense. I, I don't regret the fact that I left when I did because it was inherently unhelpful for where I was at. In saying that, like it felt like I kind of just did a jump to the side with my second degree because obviously I still had an interest in that area because it was something that I was obsessed about, probably not from a healthy place, but I was like willing to give the, the things that I learned about exercise. I probably didn't know as much as I did about kind of like food stuff at the time. So it was kind of like a new foray, new area of expertise that I could develop. And I like the idea of kind of like working on my feet and being around people and all of that kind of stuff. So I do regret not finishing nutrition and dietetics. Who knows? Maybe, you know, got a long career ahead of me. Who knows if I do further education and complete that degree again? Um, but the second question you asked was like, how did I develop all of these knowledge, like all this knowledge in these different areas? Oh, a lot of, a lot of professional development. I will mm -hmm. say that. So I did my intuitive eating counselor training. That was a really good kind of start into it. I also did um, something here called ACFED, which is the Australian Center for Eating Disorders. They do training on psychological principles related to eating disorder recovery, eating disorder recovery basics. And you learn all the aspects of this multidisciplinary care model. And then I did health coaching and recovery coaching. and all these other kinds of trainings around eating disorders and you know gut health issues, body image training. And I also had the pleasure of having some really great mentors, which I think people often under, underlook that aspect of mm -hmm. like, 
just spending time talking to people who have done this for a lifetime. So when I was working at the hospital, I had the pleasure of working with the physician on call or the basically the general doctor who would admit people in and look after everyone's medical history and medical stability, all of that kind of stuff. And she just taught me the world. She just spent time with me. She explained things that I had no idea about and um, really gave me the confidence that I was like, oh, no, I, I know this stuff. I also went through hypothalamic amenorrhea as um, a result of my own restrictive eating disorder and exercise kind of compulsion. And once I learned that that's what, what, I, what I had and recovered from it myself, then I looked into, okay, like, how do I upskill in this area? What are all of the, I guess, finer details of things that I need to be thinking about from a practitioner perspective, as opposed to, I guess, the fact that I went through it myself? Because I don't think going through an eating disorder or compulsive exercise or even HA made me an expert in that area. And it's very cognizant of that and I took two years to kind of like give myself space and I was like I don't really think I should work in this area until I feel like I've had space from it and I've really done my research and I've done a lot of professional development to become stronger in this area before I help other people so I had that self-awareness but yeah the majority of where I'm at today is a combination of the fact that my degree gave me a lot of information about physiology and exercise physiology and nutrition and we did a lot of psychology which I was really grateful for psychology biochemistry were my two best subjects which actually helped me a lot in what I do day to day now um and they provided the foundation for that curiosity and I guess the fact that I just really committed to becoming an expert in these areas and that's led me to doing a bit of you know research and being an expert for policy development, all this kind of um, stuff. So it's been a wild ride, but yeah, that commitment to consistently expanding your knowledge, I think is really crucial if you, I mean, in any area, but as a healthcare professional, especially. It's amazing. And this commitment can only get you so far, but passion is what really like gets you through the tough times. Did you ever have moments where you were like, Oh, this is so exhausting to learn and everything. Like you had some low days with your professional development. Oh, 100%. Definitely. I think um, as a business owner and as someone who is committed to having a really long, prosperous career in this area, there are moments where you're like, oh, I know stuff. And then the next moment you're like, oh, I know nothing. <laughs> the imposter and syndrome. So much imposter syndrome. And I think. I've always had this, um, I guess, mentality of like, I'm, I'm probably never going to be the smartest person in the room. And the moment I start thinking I'm the smartest person in the room is probably when I stop learning. So to always have that curiosity. But there were definitely times where I was like really busy with work and like trying to meet the deadline of like different professional development that I was doing or different projects that I had willingly put my hand up for. And I was like, oh, why did I sign up for this? But you have a cry, you regroup, and you kind of go, okay, I remember my why. I remember why I said yes to this to begin with. And then you keep moving forward. And I think that resilience was something that I actually built through recovery because recovery is bloody hard. Like mm. one of the most difficult things people will ever do in their lifetime. But you learn these amazing coping strategies that show you how resilient you can be. And I mean, resilient in a, in a healthy sense where you have compassion for yourself and you realize that these difficult moments happen and that you can feel sad or frustrated or upset or exhausted and that you can also like regroup and move forward and remember why it was that you started this in the first place. Mm, resilience. So I guess this perfectly progresses on to your eating disorder and what steps did you take? Because Around this time, you were struggling with your eating disorder and studying a sports degree. And what steps did you take to, you know, like fight through, be resilient, massively improve your eating disorder? 
Well, I don't think I <clears throat> fought through in any sense. Sometimes I definitely stumbled. Mm. Uh, the main things that I did were, so prior to when I left, before I left Adelaide, I was having outpatient treatment. So I saw a dietitian and I saw, I think he was a psychiatrist, a wise old man. Mm. And those two were really the first that kind of kick-started my recovery journey. When I moved to Sydney, I really struggled to find a treatment team that I really clicked with. And I think that therapeutic alliance between yourself and your um, healthcare team is so essential to the outcomes that you get with your recovery. So I, I think when we often say like, you know, ask for help, I think the better way to say that is like, ask for help. And if it's not the right kind of help, keep asking for help until you find mm -hmm. the help that's going to be helpful for you. Mm -hmm. So I had to do that for myself. I fell in and out of treatment because I just didn't feel like I was moving anywhere. And it wasn't because my health professionals weren't good at what they did. It was just because they weren't the right fit for me. And eventually I got to a point where I, I, wasn't, I was kind of just coasting. I was definitely in that stage of quasi-recovery where things were better than they were before, but definitely not as good as they could be. And I knew that in my heart of hearts when I was really honest with myself. So one time, one of my friends from Adelaide, she came to visit me in Sydney. And I just remember being like really rigid, still in my routines and all of these kinds of things that really impacted our ability to spend time together. And I was so excited to see her. And she was the one that was just brutally honest with me. She was like, you aren't well you need to do something about the fact that you are so stuck in these routines and terrified of stepping out of the norm and breaking away from all these rules that you've set for yourself. By the way, just a quick break from the podcast to let you know of my free hunger regulation webinar series, which is in the link in the description of this podcast. There's also an ebook version if you're more of a reader than a watcher. This is the perfect resource I wish I had when I struggled with binge eating years ago, which is used to guide you from everything you need to know from why we binge, what are the binge triggers and the eating pattern to stop binge eating. Because when we've been struggling with binge eating for so long, you and your body lose touch of what normal hunger and normal fullness is. You're constantly on feast or famine mode. So head to the link in the description of this podcast for the free hunger regulation resources to have a clear game plan to tackle binge eating for good. Anyway, let's get straight back to the episode. And as hard as that was to hear, it was a, a massive turning point for me. And so I went back to my GP and I was like, I think I just need something more intensive because I don't feel like I'm moving forward in, in any capacity. And she referred me to an outpatient program at a hospital. And uh, I put myself on the wait list. And I remember when I got called that there was a place available, just like crying on the phone because I knew that that was going to be the most difficult form of treatment that I probably ever did, but probably the most life-changing. So with the outpatient program, you go in, you're quote unquote admitted every day and you have supervised meals and therapy for about half the day. And then you quote unquote discharge and you go home and you do the rest of your meals and snacks on your own. And I remember my first day just hating every moment of it, mm -hmm. hating the food that was on offer, hating the fact that the regularity of our meals were at different times than what I was used to, hating talking about my feelings. My therapist at the time, who was my group therapist in that day program, who is still to this day my therapist, even yep. though I don't have an eating disorder anymore, said, I don't think you cracked a smile for the first three months. Which was probably true because I was just angry and sad. And I think those are very normal reactions. Like your eating disorder often makes you live in this really dull gray zone of emotions. You don't feel those massive highs. You don't feel those massive lows. You just kind of sit in this like gray zone and it feels really blah. But after this like consistent nutrition, I started coming out the other side of, oh, okay, like I, I'm funny. And I have interests outside of food and exercise. And yeah, maybe I still feel really self-conscious about the fact that I'm gaining weight, but actually 
I feel like I'm a better version of myself. And I held on to that hope that maybe, just maybe, things would be far better on the other side of being fully recovered than how they felt right now. And that outpatient program was probably what pushed me to that full recovery stage of just feeling so relaxed around food. Not having that stress meant that I had so much mental capacity for other things. I could retain information so much better when I was studying. I had the energy to go out with my friends and more so than that, to maintain all my energy when I was on placement at uni. All these things were really important. Now, I will say during that time, even though I quote unquote hit the discharge weight that they wanted me to, I still didn't have my menstrual cycle back. And that was a big red flag. But I'd I'd been misdiagnosed with PCOS a million times every time I went to the doctor. And I was like, well, we've learned about PCOS at university and the treatment for it is kind of what I'm doing with the exercise and the food. But it was the wrong diagnosis. And it wasn't until several years yet later that I learned that hypothalamic amenorrhea was actually my correct diagnosis. And then I spent kind of probably another three to six months gaining just a little bit like, you know, more weight, stopping exercise, really just kind of going like, maybe I just didn't give my body the like little extra nudge that it needed at the end. And then I recovered from that. So um, both of those, like that, that's kind of like the long journey of how I recovered because I don't mm-hmm. think it's ever a short journey and how I became interested in these kinds of areas as well as a fully recovered person. Wow. It seems like you've gone through really, really intense, quote unquote, what you probably call grueling recovery. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone's recovery journey is ever sunshine and rainbows, to be honest. Like, I think there are definitely moments that feel good that you need to hold on to. Mm. But a lot of the time, recovery is quite negatively reinforcing because you're doing these things that you know are good for you, but they feel really bad at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So going to the hypothalamic menorrhea. So at one point you're recovering from your eating disorder and then you're like gaining weight, gaining weight a little bit, a little bit. And then there was a point where your, your periods came back, right? Yes. Yeah. And um, so coming from recovering from an eating disorder, surely there must have been some body image issues thinking like, oh, I'm probably gaining so much weight. Did you have, did you struggle with any body image issues? So one of the things I really struggled with initially was I was always told that once I'd recover, I'd reach this set point and I wouldn't really have to think about my weight anymore. And the thing was like, once I recovered from my eating disorder, I, I kind of just hovered around this area and like truly was just living my life just you know, exercising when I wanted to, resting when I wanted to, going out with my friends and, you know, eating food and all that kind of stuff. And my weight just kind of sat where it was sitting. And I was like, but that's, you know, what they told me was going to happen. And now that I figured out hypothalamic amenorrhea is what's preventing me from having menstrual cycles, it's obvious that my weight is not high enough for where my body needs it to be. Mm. And I was like, at the time, I just quit my corporate job. I was just starting in private practice. I was like, what if I get into this industry where your body is almost like your business card? Mm -hmm. And I'm also going through this process of actively gaining weight. And my mindset was not so much like, will my friends love me if my body's different? It's like, will I be successful? if my body changes and I'm still working as a health professional, which seems wild to say, but that was honestly how I was thinking. I was like, incredibly, I had this incredible internalized fat phobia of like, I was all about like body diversity to the people around me. But like, I was like, I held myself to this different set of standards and it made me so angry Because I was like, oh, this is like what you're preaching to other people and you can't allow yourself to, to, you know, hold yourself to that same standard. So it took a lot of uh, work to kind of release myself and, and 
really challenge those beliefs. And to be fair, I'm incredibly privileged because I recovered into what society would deem a very thin, acceptable body type. Mm-hmm. And that's important to know because there are a lot of people who go through recovery whose body types and genetics mean that they don't fit that thin ideal and then they do have to work through so much more of weight stigma and body image issues compared to people who just kind of sit in this like very privileged thin ideal. So although I did have to work through considerable body image issues, I think I still live in a very privileged body which affords me a lot of ease in society that other people don't have in recovery. So it would be remiss of me not to say and mention that. Mm-hmm. Wow, that must have been really, really difficult. I mean, like difficult mentally to think about like, oh, this is a really strange privilege to be in. Yeah. Yeah. And if so, if someone's struggling with their body image now and they love going to the gym, what would what would you recommend for, you know, that person who loves going to the gym in in a healthy, thriving way, like it just relieves their stress and everything. But they're a bit nervous about like how they feel because there are mirrors all around, people looking around or although they're not actually looking at you, like you have this idea that like people are just staring at you during the middle of the sets and stuff like that. Yeah. What would you recommend to someone struggling with their body image? So body image issues come in a variety of like they they present in a variety of different ways. And I think the fear of judgment from other people is a big one. Um, the first thing that I would say that you kind of already mentioned is checking in with your intentions before you exercise is, in, is a really important thing to do. Like, why am I choosing to move my body today? And be really honest with yourself. So am I turning up to the de- like the gym today because... I just feel like moving my body and I'll check in with my body as I go and I have this workout set, but if my body tells me it needs something different or I'm tired, then I'm willing to kind of adjust as I go. That's a very healthy kind of intention versus I'm turning up to the gym today because I ate this meal last night and I feel really guilty about it. Or I'm turning up to the gym today because... This is the only tool I have for managing stress and I'm really stressed at the moment. So I'm turning up to the gym every day to manage my stress. Or um, my mood is incredibly low. And as a result, my kind of go-to is that critical voice in my head just takes it out on my body and tells me that if I change my body or I exercise, then my mood will be infinitely better and I'll live a happier life. So We know those are the kinds of intentions that we have to challenge a little bit. But like once you're there, obviously we're not saying even if you have unhelpful intentions. So even if you have those unhelpful intentions, we're not saying that you're never allowed to exercise. But go into the gym being really curious about your intensity. Are you being respectful to your body? Or are you pushing it far beyond what you know your capabilities and your boundaries are for what would be healthy today? And what else are you doing after the gym to nurture yourself? If your mood is really low, don't make the gym the only thing that you do as a form of self-care. Book in to see your therapist if you haven't already. Make plans to see your friends. Cook something that's going to really nourish your body, even if you don't feel like it. Sometimes that I do that. I'm like, oh, cooking's the last thing I want to do. But I'm always really proud of myself when I take the time to do that. Maybe you have some downtime. So instead of doom scrolling on your phone, you're like, I'm going to watch a documentary or read a book or listen to a podcast. So I think exercise when you're on a body image journey needs to just be one tool, not the only tool that you use to improve how you're feeling. Mm, That's really interesting. I mean, like personally for me, I love going to the gym and everything, but sometimes I'm like physically tired 
or I just want something really quick. So sometimes I just like pop in a pizza at the end. I think looking back at it, maybe I should like prepare um, a meal afterwards because it feels like I've, I personally find the gym as self-care because I really enjoy the gym lifting things. But it seems like another form of self-care, like cooking or something, it seems like a continuous thing. Like, what would you recommend? Or do you think if you feel like you want something quick, like a pizza, would you go for it? Or I'm just Yeah, like... I, I mean, I, I don't ever think that there's a black and white. I, I Just because I said, like, cooking something nice for yourself, like, obviously that's an ideal. But if I'm honest, if I'm honest... <laughs> I get takeaway far more frequently than I cook for myself. And that's totally fine. I think we have to have realistic expectations for ourselves. But mm. what I often find is if people are in like a really low mood and they're lacking motivation, sometimes cooking can be that form of self-care. But it's about going, set your expectations at a realistic level. Maybe that's like cooking for yourself once a week, like making a nice meal for yourself once a week. And then getting things that you can put in your household that are going to be nutritious, but also really quick and easy so that it's not taking out even more energy after a really long day, like you said. So, of course, it can like cooking can be a form of self-care, but you can also have self-care as like making life easy to make nourishment easy. Mm. Yeah, that's really insightful because, yeah, looking back at it, I'm just... um stealing all your tips and everything looking back at it now like because i would kind of like dread sometimes if i'm feeling really exhausted throughout the day and it's dinner time for example i would kind of like dread like oh I, I really want to cook something for like coincidentally as a dietitian i would really like to cook something nutritious has like maybe like five plant points or something really high in fiber needs like cooking chopping and everything but yeah now that you mention it I could do it once and or like twice throughout the week and then just like bulk cook them. So it's just there. I didn't think I, I didn't think meal prepping, for example, would be a form of their self-care. That's really insightful, Sarah. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Just you can steal my tips any steal my tips any day. I know. I mean, uh, at the end of this podcast, um, we'll get people to point. Well, I'll get um, you to point where people can find you. But I'd like to uh, ask another question. So you have this program I just uh, found, like about clothing, fashion. Well, not not like the, probably at the Victoria's Secret uh, kind of fashion show thing, but like dressing yourself for way to improve your body image rather than, you know, like um, lack of a better word, decreasing your self-esteem. Would you want to talk about how can we like improve our body image or dress the way that would improve our body image? Yeah. So I actually work really closely with a, a stylist, which is interesting. Oh, okay, um, maybe that's wrong then. It is Victoria's Secret then. <laughs> yeah, no, she's a good friend of mine. And she was probably part of my own body image journey, whether or not she knows it. Mostly from a self-confidence in hmm. my body that I didn't have before. And one of the things that she really taught me was fashion is about the clothes, not the body that's wearing them. And then mm -hmm. it can be a really amazing form of self-expression. And I think when you're going through a body image journey where maybe you don't have the highest self-esteem, maybe your body's changing and fluctuating as it will through your entire life, you start to get really sad and upset about dressing yourself because it might have to be different than it was before. You might have to buy a different size than it was before. You might have to let go of things that you, that no longer serve you. And that can be really tough. Mm. But I also think, and I really kind of encourage clients to explore the fact that when we are thinking about dressing ourselves it can be a way of nurturing our bodies because if we buy in clothes that fit and that flatter us, it's about saying my body is deserving of feeling and looking good now as it is now today, mm. not in five months time after I've done this crazy diet or whatever kind of is floating through your mind. It's like my body is deserving of feeling good now and I'm deserving of wearing nice things now. 
because I feel like a lot of the time we hold on to the fact that I'll only be happy or desirable or lovable or attractive, quote unquote, when. So um, when I'm working with her and we've run this workshop once, we might run it again in the future. It's really about helping give people the skills of how do you go through your wardrobe and clean stuff out? Like what do you know are the, the right things to hold on to versus the things to let go of? How do you go to a store and pick up things and not judge yourself when you're in the changing room? Mm. How do you become curious with fashion and try new things? Similarly to how we try new foods, how do you break away from the societal rules about what we're told that we can and we can't wear? Similarly to the fact that we don't believe in in food rules. And I think there are a lot of similarities between, I guess, becoming really comfortable with your style as there are becoming just really comfortable in your body. Yeah. I mean, there's a saying. I could probably butcher it, but like I'm paraphrasing it, but like the best fashion you could wear is your confidence. Sure. I don't know if I've heard that uh, or, or something similar, something like something cheesy, but yeah. But if, so like with clothes and everything, would you recommend something like say like your current clothes in your wardrobe don't fit or a few clothes in your wardrobe don't fit? I'm talking, I'm relating to myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, Would you recommend like, going a size up or would you just you know like to be extra large or would you just be like oh just a little bit large just a little bit of leeway what would you recommend i think it's important to know that like your body's going to fluctuate throughout the month as well Mm. like we should always have different clothes for how our body's feeling at different moments so you might have a pair of jeans that's like just a little bit looser and comfier maybe you just want to wear that on a day where you just don't feel like wearing tighter clothes that's fine. Maybe you have a pair of jeans that's like more fitted and you like the way that those feel when you go out and you pair them with a a certain shirt. So I always think that you should have pieces in your wardrobe that reflect that your body is going to change moment to moment, day to day, for a variety of different reasons. And you only need to buy pieces that are like really fitted and really tailored. I think for for women, we're often taught that we have to be like really quote unquote sexy all the time and wear things that show off our body. And yes, like do that, but also like have a feminine flowy dress for those days where you don't want anything clinging to your stomach, you know, Mm. have a really nice tracksuit set on those days where you're like, you know what, I'm not feeling my best but this is a matching cute tracksuit set and I'm going to pair it with my favorite sneakers and at least I look cute when I walk down the street to just go and get my coffee. So there are ways of just making your wardrobe still really caring towards your body while also recognizing that you're going to have pieces in your wardrobe that are a million different sizes and it's not about the size of the piece of clothing. It's how the clothing fits, where Mm. you're going to wear it, how you're going to wear it, why you're going to wear it. And just being respectful to the fact that, you know, first of all, size is completely subjective. It changes from brand to brand, country to country. Yeah. And second of all, like, you know, bodies fluctuate. And the more you can become comfortable with the fact that bodies fluctuate, I guess the less judgment you place on yourself when you need to wear just a different piece of clothing for that particular day. Mm, I completely agree with you there because like, Let's say I'm in the gym. Sometimes I have days where I just want to wear something like a a bigger t-shirt and some like um, joggers. But there are other days where I just want to wear, well, I don't know what the proper word is, like a vest, like a sleeveless vest. And then when I'm working out, at first I feel like, oh, I don't really feel, I don't look like um, Chris Bumstead or like a big bodybuilder or something. But although I'm wearing like the sleeveless vest, when I start lifting and seeing what my body does, like I can see like my, my skin and like how strong my body is acting upon the weights. It just makes me feel like really, really good. Like, wow. Actually, when I see my body working and moving in this fashion, like in the mirror, I'm like, wow, this is actually, wow, amazing. So I think yes. it's like action and everything of how you yeah. see your body. And that's what we know is one of the aspects of positive body image is like focusing on on functionality and body pride, which is 
you know, something that we have to practice. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing, Sarah. I mean, I'm looking at the time at the moment, but if people would love to work with you or find more about you, where can they find you? So, um, like I said, on social media, you can connect with me on Instagram. I am on TikTok, but I wouldn't say I'm very active on TikTok. Um, my handle is at Sarah Liz King. My website is also sarahlizking.com. So you can feel free to get in touch with me, send me a DM. I am always so happy to say hello to friendly new faces. Oh, and you, 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 as, a, you as a guest, you seem really friendly. You have this nice comedic, comedic vibe about you, really jolly. I wouldn't think that you had these really intense moments with an eating disorder. It seems like you just come out of like a rainbow or something. <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, I think some of the most delightful people have been through some of the most difficult moments in their life. Yeah, Sarah. So there's, I know I said this is the final question before, but this is the actual final question. So yeah. this addition <laughs> I've um, been doing in my podcast with guests is that the previous guest would ask a question for the current guest, which is you. So okay. question that the previous guest, uh, Pratima, she's a thyroid health specialist, would like to ask you, Sarah, is what's one of the biggest lessons in life that you've learned? One of the biggest lessons in life that I've learned is the only constant in life is change. Mm. So either you decide to make the change or the change kind of happens to you. And I think when I was going through my recovery, I had a real fear of the unknown and fear of uncertainty because I thought by controlling so many things, I could bring like a moment of calm to the chaos and the change that is life. But leaning into the fact that change is inherently constant and it is always happening really helped me thrive a little bit better and recognize that, you know, things will change, but also the consistent thing with that is like you can always look after yourself. You can always, you know, be your own constant in the ever-changing world around you. So I think that was, yeah, one of the biggest things, biggest lessons I've learned. Wow, that's very insightful. And for the question you'd like to give for the next guest, what would that be? So the question I would like to give <clears throat> to the next guest is, what are the daily non-negotiables you have that make you feel your best? Mm. How many would you, how many uh, non-negotiables are you expecting the next guest to answer? Or are you just, just leave uh, A long list. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> there's only one or two. Everyone's different. Okay. That's, that's, a, that's a really, really good question. No, that's really, really good. All right. Well, Sarah, thanks for coming along to this podcast. Thanks again. Struggling with binge eating? Gain access to my exclusive self-paced binge eating freedom course found in the link in the description of this podcast. My course is everything I wish I knew when I struggled with binge eating, but it's all wrapped up into one easy to understand platform. You'll finally learn how to put an end to binge eating and put an end to food dictating everything you do, controlling your life. Access it now in the link in the description of this podcast.